Our scripture reading today is Psalm 1. And if you have a Bible from the back of the church, it's on page 448. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. We're going to start a new series, five weeks in the Psalms. Um, this morning. And uh, before we get into that, if you were in the lobby earlier and you saw a new heritage directory for 2018, please pick one of those up. If you're a member or regular attender here, we want you to have one of those. And I sent out an email earlier this morning encouraging you in ways in which you can put that directory into practice. It exists for a twofold purpose. First, to encourage and facilitate fellowship in our body so that you can know each other, communicate with each other, relate to each other, have each other in each other's homes, have meals together, know who you're uh, covenanting together to watch over each other spiritually and care for one another. And so that's the first purpose of it. The second purpose is for to, to facilitate prayer. And we've divided that directory intentionally up into four families or four people a day for 31 days so that you can pray through the membership of our church on a regular monthly basis. And so please take advantage of that. Start tomorrow, January 1. Use that directory, and uh, we encourage you to pick one up on the way out if you haven't done so already. So this uh, sermon series in the Psalms, I've entitled Coram Deo, Five Aspects of Life in the Presence of God. And it might be helpful to define Coram Deo, since that's not a phrase that we throw around all the time, right? That's a Latin phrase. And it means before the present, in the presence of God or before the face of God. And that is how we're called to live as believers. We are called to live consciously every day before the face of God and in the presence of God. Recently departed theologian R.C. Sproul, I think, helpfully summarizes what Coram Deo means in the following quote. He says, to live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. To live all of life quorum Deo is to live a life of integrity. It's a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in the majesty of God. A fragmented life is a life of disintegration. It is marked by inconsistency, disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. The Christian who compartmentalizes his, his or her life into two sections, the religious 
and the non-religious has failed to grasp the big idea. The big idea is that all of life is religious and none of life is irreligious. To divide life between the religious and the non-religious is itself a sacrilege. Integrity is found where men and women live their lives in a pattern of consistency. It's a pattern that functions the same basic way in church as out of church. It's a life that's open before God. It's a life in which all that is done is done as to the Lord. It's a life lived by principle, not expediency, by humility before God, not defiance. It's a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the word of God. End quote. Long quote, but I hope it's helpful in getting a grasp on this idea of what Coram Deo is. All of life lived in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And so this morning I want us to think about this theme together in Psalm 1. And so three points. First of all, the reason. What's the reason for this series? Why a five-week sermon series on a theme like life in the presence of God, living Coram Deo? And why the Psalms as a book to consider in that series? Well, perhaps unlike any other book in the Bible, the Psalms teach us what it looks like to live Coram Deo. We have living examples of it. Because deep down, we need a model, we need imitation, we need an example of what this looks like, and the Psalms provide us those examples. In fact, Psalm 16 summarizes the essence of Coram Deo. Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord always before me. That's Coram Deo. Setting the Lord always before you. So that's the goal in this series. It's to learn from the Psalms how to live before the face of God, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. In everything we do this next year and the rest of our days on earth. This is the time of year, you know, for making resolutions. David Mathis, a writer at Desiring God, put out the following encouragement just a few days ago in thinking through these new resolves we tend to make in the new year. He said, quote, if you're looking for just one fresh spiritual focus for the new year, I'd like to offer a suggestion. Marry the Bible. And then he quotes a 1982 sermon from John Piper, which is more relevant now than when he preached it when I was two years old. He says, Satan devotes himself 168 hours a week trying to deceive you and fill your mind with junk. He has seen to it that you are surrounded almost entirely by a Christless culture whose mood and entertainment and advertising and recreation and politics are shot through with lies about what you should feel and think and do. Do you think that in this atmosphere you can maintain a vigorous, powerful, free, renewed mind with a 10-minute glance at God's book a day? The reason there are church people who are basically secular like everyone else except with a religious veneer is that they devote 99% of their time to absorbing the trajectories of the world and 1% of their time to absorbing the trajectories of God's word. If you want to bring forth the will of God in your life like a mother brings forth a child, you must marry the Bible. End quote. So we got to marry the Bible. And my goal this morning is to help give you a hunger to marry the Bible this year. 
I want you to cheat on your spouse and marry the Bible, which, as you know, is no form of cheating whatsoever. It's, in fact, the best thing you can do for your spouse is to have a supreme lover named Jesus. So marrying the Bible by reading it, by listening to it, by gathering weekly as the church to hear it taught, by memorizing it, and by sharing what you're receiving with your family, friends, and others in your life. My goal is not just for you to have a quiet time. You know, a time every day where you set a little portion of time aside to read and pray. That would be one aspect of living Coram Deo. But if that were my goal, I would not be calling you to live Coram Deo. I'd be calling you to live Coram Momento, one moment of your life in the presence of God. But no, what I'm after is a quiet life that a quiet time serves, a life of practicing the presence of God every moment of every day of setting the Lord continually before you in all you do. Jared Wilson says, I firmly believe that every Christian should set apart a special time during each day in which to spend time with God in prayer and Bible reading. But when I do my due diligence in the quiet time, I end up reading things like pray constantly, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Most of us certainly make time for God when we feel we have the time. The problem is that God owns all of life. And worshiping God means we must revolve around him, not he around us. So God shouldn't be confined to his own compartment in our schedule. Jesus does not abide in his assigned time slot. We abide in him. End quote. So we begin this morning, this, this series, by looking at what commitment to God actually looks like. What must be in place in terms of convictions and commitments if we're going to live Coram Deo, if we're going to live consciously and actively and intentionally every moment in the presence of God, setting him always before us. So that's the first point. There's the reason. Let me give you the second point, and this is going to get us into the psalm. The resolve. The resolve. Notice the resolution of the psalmist here in Psalm 1, and we're going to be looking at the entirety of the psalm in just a moment under the third point, but I just want to drill down a little bit right here into the essence of what the psalmist is getting after in Psalm 1. And it's, it's really in verse 2. So look at verse 2 with me for a moment. His delight, that is the blessed man, the godly man, the righteous man, the righteous man's delight or righteous woman's delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, that is God's law, he, the righteous man or woman, meditates day and night. So three quick things here before we get into the, the rest of this psalm. First of all, the object, the object of meditation. What is the object of our contemplation, of our pondering, of our preoccupation, of our thought life, of our meditation? What, what is it to be? It is to be, according to verse 2, the law of the Lord. The word of God is to be our occupation, our object of meditation. And how often is this to be our object of meditation? How often is the word of God to be in our minds and on our hearts? Well, I think it says continually, right? Second, two, Verse 2 again, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law 
He meditates day and night. There's a consistency and a constancy to this meditation. It sounds like this is a, a, a quorum deo kind of pursuit. This isn't a pursuit of a quiet time. It's a pursuit of a quiet life. It's a pursuit of praying continually, of walking in the presence of God, of seeking to bring the Lord into everything that we are doing. And what his word would have to say about that pursuit. But before we move on, it would be helpful to define exactly what I mean when we talk about meditation. Because if you're not familiar with what the Bible thinks about that, we get all kinds of confusing ideas from our culture. Because in our culture, what's the idea of meditation? The idea of meditation is getting a period of time where you can get quiet, get silent, and empty your mind, right? Just get it all out and focus, be very present in the moment, sense whatever's around you, smells, tastes, touches, and just be quiet for a period of time. Now, that may be, that may be good. It would be good just to sit down and just take everything in, but that's not what the Bible means by meditation, The Bible doesn't have in view a meditation that empties the mind. The Bible has in view a meditation that fills the mind. We are to fill our minds with certain kinds of thoughts, not just empty them. We are to fill our minds with the law of the Lord. We are to fill our mind with the thoughts and ways of God. So that means meditation involves not just the head, but also the heart, right? Notice what he says, delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. The, the, the heart is the seat of our affections and our delights and our motivation. So delighting in the law is not simply intellectual study. This is not just a Bible study exercise, but it's an internal relishing and a cherishing of the truth of God's word. And also meditation doesn't just involve the head, but also the heart, but it also in, doesn't just involve thinking, but acting. The vision is, it's a delight in the law of the Lord. The law tells us what to do and how to live. So delighting in the law is not simply a matter of noticing truths and principles in God's word and saying, hmm, that's a good way to live. But it's loving what we see and acting in accord with it. So see, meditation has this sort of three-pronged vision to it. It has a head, a heart, and a hands component. That is, it starts in our heads as we think and mull and ponder and imagine and get inside of what God's word is saying. And at the same time, that impacts our affections and our hearts, which leads to a change in attitudes and behavior in response to it. So then meditation on scripture is pondering, relishing, imagining, applying, and rehearsing God's truth until it becomes real to our hearts and it begins to affect our attitudes and behavior. A helpful illustration I heard about this was the difference between a motorboat, a raft, and a sailboat. Let me give you this illustration. If you think about it, what's going on when you're in a motorboat? Well, if you're in a motorboat, you're clearly in charge. I mean, yes, the engine is pushing you down the lake or the river, but clearly you're the one giving direction. You're determining how fast you're going, what direction you're taking. And some people can approach spiritual disciplines that way. Like if I'm just aggressive enough, if I'm just, you know, have enough quiet times, then I can make the transformation happen in my life. I'm the one who's in control. And that's the way we can kind of approach meditation. If we just think hard enough and pray hard enough and 
live well enough that somehow we'll get it, and we treat Christianity like a motorboat. Well, some of us have been burned by that kind of approach, and we realize how futile it is, and we grow up and get frustrated and give up, and so we go into the sailboat, or the uh, raft. We get in the raft. It's all grace, baby. It's all grace. Just sit back, you know, float along. If you ask these people to do anything to further their spiritual growth or to pursue anything, nah, man, I'm not into works. I'm into grace. Don't be getting legalistic with me. So they drift. And I think John, when he was leading our worship this morning, read a very important passage about drift. Hebrews 2. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. So all it takes for you to drift is to not pay very close attention to God's word. That's it. That's, that's scary. We got to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift. But what does that say about the person who's in the raft and gives no attention whatsoever to God's word? They're well, well down the river where they shouldn't be. So it's not a motorboat. It's not a raft. It's a sailboat. What's a sailboat? Well, on a sailboat, you don't move if the wind's not moving. You can't control the wind. You can't manufacture the wind. All you can do is lift the sail and pray for the wind to blow. Are you working? Yes. You're getting the sail in position. Are you responsible for the wind blowing? No. God is. And that's how we're to practice spiritual discipline. Bible reading, Bible meditation is all about getting in a sailboat. It's lifting the sail and praying for the wind. But we got to lift the sail. We're responsible to lift the sail. But God is responsible to send the wind. I guess there's a deeper question here, probably that needs to be answered even before we get much further along in this sermon. And that is, is this what you really want? Unless you want to get in the sailboat, the best sailing lessons are not going to help you. Psalm 27 verse 8 says, You have said, Seek my face. And I say, your face, O Lord, will I seek. How do you respond to God's invitation? Do you have any desire for that, any motivation for that, any heart for that? Is that what your heart says to God? If God says, seek my face, say, you bet it, you bet I will. Your, your face will I seek. Rankin Wilborn, pastor, says, unless God is the end that you desire, these calls to draw the sail will come across as simply boxes to check duties to perform, and more items to add to your already long to-do list. If that's how you're hearing this morning's sermon, examine your heart. If you hear this as one more thing to add to my to-do list, it may be because you're not born again, because you don't have a heart to love God and to prioritize God. But I, I'm convinced, knowing you, that that's the vast majority of you, that's not the case. You have a heart for God, you want to seek God, and you want motivation and encouragement to do that. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of this sermon giving. But we do need to issue a warning here, certainly in a crowd this size, that there are those who are coming here by just, you know, it's the religious thing to do on a Sunday, and we need to do that, and I think it's a good idea that we be in church. 
But Rankin continues and says, you may think you're not moving forward with God because you don't want it enough, but perhaps it's because God is not your true God. He's not really the one your heart is after. Whatever your heart seeks most, that is your real God. And any call to meditate will sound laborious if God is not the one that your heart most seeks. It will always sound like work if our hearts aren't drawn toward God. So, now let's spend the rest of our time, and this will be the vast majority of our time this morning, talking about the results. So we've looked at the reason for the series, why, why, why this call to live Coram Deo, why this desire to set the Lord always before us. Then we looked at the resolve, which is to meditate on the Word of God day and night. Now let's look at the results of that, because it's in looking at the results and digging down deep that we find the motivation and the incentive to give ourselves to this pursuit. If I was just to close the sermon there, I mean, we'd all leave somewhat instructed and very little encouraged. You're like, well, good, you told me everything I already know. You mentioned that, you know, it's good to live life in the presence of God and that I should meditate. But that wouldn't be a very Christian sermon. So we have to dig down deep here and see all the motivation that Psalm 1 gives us for this pursuit of living a life, practicing the presence of God in the Word of God. So let's talk about this. The results, the results. So the ultimate result is given in the very first word of the psalm. Blessed. Blessed. And in a sense, that's the only word we need. Blessed. Do you know what blessed means? It's not just happy. It's much richer and much deeper than that. The idea of blessed or blessed in the Bible refers to complete peace and fullness of life and total well-being. It's shalom. It's a it's an all-encompassing, enormous promise. And to whom does this blessing come? The blessing comes to the meditating. The blessing comes to the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So in order to be blessed, we must meditate. But that is the best possible motivation for pursuing that. You will be blessed. You will experience greater peace and fullness of life and total well-being. It's an enormous promise. All is a result of meditating on the Word of God in our heart of hearts. So, let's mine out what that means. What is that blessing all about? Well, it has three components to it. And it's one component is in verses 1 and 2, and one component is in verse 3 and 4, and one component is verse 5 and 6. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. So let's look at these three components of blessing that come from meditating on the Word of God day and night. Number one, here's the first blessing, freedom. Freedom. Independence from the world's clutches and ways. You are, too, too, you are truly and ultimately free. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, why does the psalmist begin 
with that phrase, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Why doesn't he just say, don't be wicked, don't sin, don't scoff. Delight in the law of the Lord. Well, the reason is that the contrast he wants to draw is not of wickedness versus righteousness, but the influence of, rich, of wickedness versus the influence of righteousness. Don't give your attention to the world, the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer, so that you start to delight in their ways, but give your attention to God and His Word so that you might be influenced by Him and learn to delight in His ways. And then you experience freedom. John Piper says, nobody walks in the way of the wicked out of duty. We walk and stand and sit in their ways because that's what we want. And we want their ways because we've been watching them so intently that we, what they do has become attractive to us. And so we have, in one sense, meditated on them and then we delight in them. See, the war from our behavior starts in the heart. Behavior flows from the heart, from the affections of the heart. And this culture is beating us, beating us, beating us, beating us through technology, social media, news, all kinds of things, a way of life, a vision for life. And giving ourselves to God and his word gives us freedom. Did you not experience that by watching the video this morning or during the Lord's Supper or singing worship? Aren't you all of a sudden, maybe you came in here thinking about 2017 and all the craziness that's gone on in our country this year and all the, all the prospects, kind of the doom that appears to be on the horizon and just all these things, and it could just begin to affect us and weigh us down. And then you, then you hear Isaiah 41.10 and you start to think about that. Or you, you experience the, Lord, the Lord's nearness and the Lord's supper or you're singing and you're reminded, yes, he, it is well with my soul. He will take care of me. And though that meditation produces a delight in God. See, that's what's been going on here this morning. And that's why the contrast in verse 2 refers not to duty and obedience, but to delight and meditation. The point is that the only hope that we have against the fleeting pleasure of the world and its entrapments is the lasting pleasure that's offered to us in God's word. Even an ungodly life is based on some form of meditation. Everybody's life is shaped by meditation. Everybody's. Notice, notice the progression here in verse 1. There's a man who's walking in the counsel of the wicked. He's standing in the way of sinners, and then he's sitting in the seat of scoffers. There's this progression. They're walking, they're standing, oh, they're sitting. They like it. They found their home. You say, you want to avoid that? You want to avoid being caught up in that trap? Then you've got to have a different delight. You've got to have a different source of joy. Counsel then refers to a form of wisdom and thinking and will be either be meditating and walking in God's wisdom or meditating and walking in the worldly wisdom. And what shapes our thinking, counsel, shapes our behavior, way, and your attitude and heart. And this is why moralism or do it, just do it, you know, just read, just pr 
Just those sorts of exhortations will not change anything fundamentally about us. Scott Sauls, a pastor in Nashville, says, Moralism says that we can become better people by keeping rules and striving to be good. But Scripture rejects this idea. Instead, Scripture insists that character develops only in the context of freedom. Get this. Listen very carefully. Change comes not from striving in our own strength to be like Jesus, but by developing a habit of being with Jesus. Moralism calls for change from the outside in through cosmetic, behavior-focused sin management. Grace produces change from the inside out through heart renewal and transformed motivations. Change happens then only as our motivations and desires change. Behavior is always driven by whatever we desire most. For behavior to change, desire must be transformed first. It's inside out, not outside in. And in, that's the end of the quote. But the, 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 the bigger question this psalm answers is, how do the desires get changed? The desires get changed through meditation. Through what fills the mind is absorbed into the heart. So the battle to avoid the counsel of the wicked and the way of the sinner and the seat of the scoffer is a fight that's won by delight. And in no other way is it won. And that delight is nourished and strengthened through meditating on God's instructions in the Psalms and in other parts of the Scriptures day and night. That's how we experience freedom. So do you want to live as a more free person? Free from anxiety, free from fear, free from the need for others' approval, free from ensnaring and uh, progressive habits of sin, freedom from laziness, freedom from idols of comfort and control, freedom from all those sorts of things. You want to live free, free from the constraining influence of the world. You want to live free. You want to be a free person. You want to get out of, quit being a slave to the system. You want to get out of that? Meditate on the word of God day and night. It will set you free. Jesus said so, John 8. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's all we need. It's the only encouragement we really need, but there's more. There's more. So we experience the blessedness of freedom. Secondly, we experience the blessedness of stability. Stability and strength. Look at verses 3 and 4. He is like a tree, the righteous man or woman, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. See, we have a two images here. We have a strong tree and we got chaff. You say, where's the mighty oaks in the world? Where are the ones that are not blown around by everything? The righteous ones who meditate on the word of God day and night, such that their roots have reached deep down into the stream of God's word and it has begun to fill them and empower them and strengthen them and make them oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. So here's the picture of the Christian life then. It's a life of God that flows through the word of God, and then our roots are tapping into that stream. It, the life is outside of us. It's, in, it's here. This is your word is life, Deuteronomy says. So life is here, and we put our roots deep into this word through meditation on it, and the result becomes delight spiritual pleasure in what we see of God and his ways. And this delight, from this delight, comes all sorts of transformed attitudes and behaviors. And thus our leaves are green during the drought, 
and our life is fruitful when other lives are barren. So two lessons from this image, I think, that are helpful in thinking about stability. First of all, meditation takes time. Trees don't grow overnight. Tree, it takes putting roots down over a long period of time. Rusty McVie says, I suspect one reason we struggle with public and private spiritual disciplines around the word and prayer is because we expect them to always be extraordinary. Like we're going to have a little mini personal revival every time we read the Bible. Like if it's not like, if I don't get a feeling, I just quit. Um, I have real problems with that approach. And I'm going to come after it from the scriptures. Because I think there's a lot of people who fall prey to that. They're, they're going to the Bible for a spiritual charge. They're going to church for a charge. They're, and they don't have any patience for ordinary plotting, which, which occupies all the biblical vision of the Christian life. We tend to be like Naaman. You want an illustration? I'll give you an illustration of Naaman. Remember him in 2 Kings 5? He's a big shot. He's the commander of the Syrian army. And he was also a leper. So he's needy and dependent, but he's powerful and he's a big shot. And after one of the Hebrew slaves brags about the prophet Elisha's healing abilities in 2 Kings 5, Naaman makes the long journey to visit Elisha. And when he got to Elisha's house, Elisha doesn't go out to greet him. He just leaves him on the porch. And he sends a servant outside and says, go tell Naaman to go wash in the river Jordan seven times. And what's Naaman's response? He's furious. He's insulted. Does this, this Elisha, this prophet of God, know who I am? I mean, I'm the Syrian king's commander of his army. I could wipe this guy out like that. So Naaman re replies in 2 Kings 5, 11, and 12, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He's insulted by this prescription from the prophet. But why is he insulted? Why is he furious? Because he expects something extraordinary. He expects an extraordinary encounter. And also, he looks down on the humble activity that Elisha has prescribed for him as the man of God to go wash in the river. You know, we can be like Naaman when it comes to spiritual disciplines, can't we? We think we're big stuff, even though we're lepers in need. We expect Jesus just to show up, wave his hand, and do something miraculous. We want healing, but we want it on our own terms, and we would like it now. But Jesus says he will heal us only if we come to him. And he tells us to go wash in the river of his sanctifying grace over and over and over and over and over again. Like Naaman, we might tend to look down on the means of grace, like Bible reading and prayer and corporate worship is just too ordinary. At least I think we can think this way if we're not careful. But you know what? Here's the good news. Naaman's story ends really well. He puts off his pride. He puts on faith and he goes and washes seven times in the Jordan and that ordinary activity in obedience to God's word brought about extraordinary results it's not the occasional 
breathtaking moments of connecting with Jesus that lead to sustained joy, although we can thank God for them when they do occur. It's rather decades of obedience through ordinary pursuit of God in the word and prayer that lead us to the abundant life that Jesus promised. So will you trust him enough to reorient your disciplines around him? And will you trust him when it's ordinary? And there's no charge and there's no buzz and there's no zing and there's no bell and there's no angels breaking out in heaven. But will you trust him by being stable and consistent with him and knowing that that stability and that consistency is the very best thing for your soul? So that's, that's the first lesson we get from this image of a tree. I want to give you a second lesson quickly. And that is, this image of a tree that leads to stability in our lives is not a stability that leaves us immune from periods of spiritual dryness and suffering. The tree, notice, only bears fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, which means there must be some things that are coming against it that might cause the leaf to wither. Yet, we must not always expect, even though it promises that the meditating person will be evergreen, we will be able to persevere and remain stable through all that life throws at us, that does not mean that we should expect to lead a life that is, has uniform experiences of joy and love. There are seasons, praise God for them, for great delight. There are also winter where we walk out this week and the prospect, if you've looked at the weather, is not much better, brothers and sisters. It's going to be a cold one, bundle up. But we can go out and we can hit, hit, feel that cold against our face. and ugh. But let that remind you that there are seasons of the soul like that too. There are seasons of the soul, and sometimes they can last years. Where we don't feel God is close and our roots may... Still be firmly in his truth, though. The sail may be lifted high, and the wind just isn't blowing. Here's what one commentator says about this. The promised immunity of the leaf from withering is not independence from the rhythm of the seasons. It's freedom from the crippling damage of the drought. When the psalmist says whatever he does... He prospers. He doesn't mean that he reaches every goal and he's always successful and he's living his best life now. Rather, it means something like a meditating person will always grow. Sometimes it will be internal growth through suffering, as in the wintertime, and sometimes it will be externally through success, as in the springtime. But you'll always grow and you'll always prosper, even when the wind's, when the wind's at your back or when the wind's in your face. I'm, I'm leaning hard on this sail, sailboat analogy this morning for a reason, so I'm going I'm to go back to the illustration and talk about one more thing, as if I know anything about sailing. I don't, but I, I read a little bit on it, so I know something, right? All right, so here's, have you ever heard of the doldrums? You know, you know that phrase, the doldrums, right? Well, we, we know it because we, we, we use that phrase a lot. But it's actually a nautical term. It comes from this whole idea of a sailboat and how it works and functions and, and all of that. And you get, you get the doldrums. Well, the question then becomes is how do we deal with, 
how do we deal with the doldrums? And um, the doldrums are an area, I'm going to read this quickly cause to make sure I get the, the, the facts right. The doldrums are an area near the equator where the water is especially warm so the wind can die down suddenly, leaving a ship stranded for an extended period of time. The word has carried over into our common usage to mean a period of listlessness, depression, and stagnation. So that's where it comes from. Got the sail lifted, boats in the water, no wind. You're in the doldrums. But you know the doldrums are a very important gift of God to us to teach us how to abide in him. They protect us from the dangerous temptation of enthroning our experience of Christ to the real Christ. Think about that. If you always got a high or a spiritual surge every time you drew the sail, it would be easy to shift into pursuing your own immediate gratification instead of pursuing Christ. See, the real way you know if you love Christ is if you draw the sail day after day after day and the wind never blows and you keep going back. That's how you know you love Jesus. It becomes less about the horizon and more about the spiritual jolt for the other people. In the name of seeking God, we can be using God to maintain some sort of sense of control over our emotions or over our own lives. But it's precisely because it's the real God that we're seeking that by definition this means that we give up our right to control him. We don't control the wind. It's a terrifying truth, but it's a truth that we need to embrace in order to become, for it to become truly life-giving for us. The doldrums train us to place our trust in God and not in our frantic blowing. There will be and there even must be times when we draw the sail and nothing happens. You're doing everything right. You're reading the word, but it doesn't seem alive. You're praying to the living God, but it seems like no one's listening. You're worship, worshiping God, but it just sounds like noise. You're doing all that you know how to do, and yet you're stuck. And the doldrums are there to remind you that it's the real God you're supposed to be seeking. You must wait on him. Wait on the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting for God means waiting for God. I don't know how else to interpret it. He's not at our service. He does what he wants to do among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And if he drops by to pay us a little visit, praise his glorious name. And if he doesn't, though he slay me, I will hope in him, Job said. This means the most important periods of your communion with God will almost never be those where you're getting anything out of it. The doldrums are where character is formed, where the Christian is formed. The most important seasons of growth will often be the ones where you feel the least growth. The doldrums. They're training you to put your trust in the wind. Waiting for the wind and being out of control 
forces us to let go of our cherished idol of instant gratification. Psalm 62, 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. When you remember that these means are precisely that, they're means to an end. Meditation is a means to an end. It's not, a mean, it's not an end in itself. It's a means of communion with God who's always there. Then when we remember that, there will be doldrums. Then we can be assured that the most important times of meditation and prayer and worship and community may in fact be the times we enjoy them the least. So take heart. Take heart. You are growing even when you don't feel like you are. Thirdly and finally, so there's, there's, there's a blessedness that comes, and the blessing is freedom, the blessing is stability, and finally, let me give us one more. In verses 5 and 6, confidence, confidence. Look at verse 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the, the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if the wicked will not stand in the judgment, what does that imply that the righteous will do? We will stand. We will stand in the judgment. Why? Because the Lord knows us. Now I want you to do something, maybe that you're not in the habit of doing, but when you read a psalm, I would encourage you not to think first and foremost of yourself. I would encourage you to think first and foremost of Jesus. Because in Luke 24, he told his disciples on the road to Emmaus that we were to think about every part of Scripture, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the things that are in there concerning himself. So I want you to read Psalm 1 in light of Jesus Christ. And doing so will produce a confidence and assurance in your relationship with God. Because without Jesus and the cross... It is frightening to meditate on this. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked shall perish. If you know yourself and you're meditating on the law of God and the word of God, you are going to feel absolutely rotten, wicked to the core. And you will read verses 5 and 6 and you will say, there is no hope for me because I'm in verse 5. In and of myself, apart from Jesus, I'm in verse 5, and everybody is. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Who in the world is righteous enough to stand before God in the judgment? And without the assurance of Jesus' death for me and his righteousness being imputed to me by faith, I will lose confidence the more I meditate on Psalm 1 and the righteousness of God on judgment day. But if you meditate on what Jesus has done for you in his living a perfect life and dying a wrath-averting death, a judgment-absorbing death, then we can truly find our assurance growing. Richard Loveless comments, he says, quote, It's an item of faith that we are children of God. There is plenty of experience in us against it. The faith that surmounts this evidence and is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources is actually the root of holiness. We are not saved by the love we exercise. We are saved by the love we trust. And when love, Loveless speaks of warming ourselves at the fire of God's love, he's describing 
what it means to meditate on the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. And if we don't meditate on that till our hearts are hot with assurance, we will steal it from other places like worldly achievements and beauty and success and achievement and um, attainments and things like that. And think about this. Who is the righteous one in Psalm 1? Jesus. Who is the man who delighted in the word of God day and night? He is the one who so profoundly meditated on scripture that he virtually bled it. He quoted it all the time. Even in his most extreme moments, whether it be in the Garden of Gethsemane or a temptation in the wilderness at the hands of the devil for 40 days. That is how he stood firm. That is how he was truly evergreen, using the word of God even when he was in hell on the cross. Jesus is the one who delighted in the word of God. Jesus is the one who's who's whose branches run deep down into the stream, whose leaves did not wither, and whatever he did, he prospered. And therefore, he can stand in the judgment, and we can stand in the judgment in him. Jesus is the supreme one on whom we ultimately meditate. And it's his life, that we give our thoughts to. Because Jesus really is the meditation of God. He's the wisdom of God. He's God's truth become concrete and applied. And he's the one who enables us to stand on the judgment day. So we must meditate on him and with him. And then not only will Psalm 1 come to life in new ways, but we will become more free, more stable, and more confident in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word to consider what it means to live every moment of our lives in your presence. Help us as we embark on a new page of a new year to devote ourselves um, through delighting in your word and in your ways and transform us this year as we soak ourselves in scripture as we marry the bible as we set seek to set you always before us and we thank you that through that greater freedom and greater stability and greater confidence will come and we thank you that all of that was purchased because psalm 1 is ultimately about our savior the lord jesus christ So, Lord Jesus, thank you for being that one who meditated on your Father's word day and night and who lived in accord with it and was able to resist all the influence of the world, who became that oak of righteousness, who became that tree that was planted by... who was able to stand in the judgment. And by virtue of your work for us, we too are able to stand in the judgment in you because we are counted righteous by faith in Christ alone. Help us to pursue you this year. Your face, O Lord, you have said, seek my face. And we want to respond, your face, O Lord, do.
Let's stand together. May this be our prayer. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. men's breakfast. We're kicking those back off this Saturday, um, 7 a.m. over in the Fellowship Hall lunchroom. We're going to be encouraging our brother Tom Devenny, who's getting married in January. So guys, please come out and come prepared to share some encouragement uh, with our brother about um, things that you have learned um, from your own marriage. And uh, midweek prayer this week at 6.15, we'll have um, the meal beforehand at 5.30, and it will be pizza this week. Um, mash cans in the back. Uh, Mr. Tom Pope is right back there. And kids, if you did not pick up a mash can for your Heritage Kids monthly missions offering where you can collect coins for that, please go back and pick one of those up and you can decorate it and uh, keep it um, at your house and collect change in it for our next missions offering. So I conclude um, with a a quote from Isaiah. I read this this week and was greatly encouraged by it in light of all that we've experienced this year and as we head into a new year let me read from you for you from Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 2 as our benediction for this morning O Lord be gracious to us we wait for you be our arm every morning our salvation in the time of trouble Lean on his arm every day, every morning.